Stay hungry, stay foolish. Our guest today delivers concise advice on how to move from original insights to new ideas and from new ideas to valuable real-world innovation. You'll learn how to increase creativity, understand the psychology of thinking differently, encourage collaboration, co-create with customers, overcome indifference, create an idea-hungry culture, rid yourself of creativity zombies, and get to innovation paradise. Drawing on over 30 years of research and experience, this honest, straight-to-the-point playbook can be dipped into or read cover-to-cover, giving you important reminders and guidance in how to make new ideas useful. We welcome author of The Innovator's Book, Rules for Rebels, Mavericks and Innovators, Dr. Max McKeown. Welcome to the show. Good to be here, Aidan. I'm very well introduced. I sound like a total superstar, don't <laughs> So we'll dive straight into it. Although the book is lovely and concise and beautifully constructed, really great job on the artwork, etc. It's very, very dense with information. And I love how you open the book, Max. Our human history is the history of ideas. Our human future is the future of ideas. Human desire, human imagination, human ingenuity, creating and copying tool makers and dream chasers. Quite a way to, to start. I mean, this is about my 10th book. I've written other books about strategy and innovation and adaptability, psychology. It's important for your listeners to know that I've got four degrees in computing, strategy, doctorate in innovation and strategy, psychology as well, in that I love ideas and I love seeing where humanity has come from. So how did we get to this point? Not so much why we're here in some kind of metaphysical way, but how did we get here? What series of choices. Is this how we would have made it if we'd thought about it? What are we likely to do next? What's feasible? What's possible? And so right at the heart of it, and you'll see this all the way through this book, the portrayal here is a mixture of words and pictures that reflect my research and also my my mode of delivery, so that you come up with this, just a few words here, our human history is the history of ideas. Of course it is. Of course it is, because History is what what is significant about the different ways that humans have lived, the differences. And we act according to the ideas in our heads, and we act differently when new ideas come into our heads and into our mode of life and change our behaviors. So as soon as you have a concept, a philosophy, you might change your behavior. And as soon as you have a, a tool, a way of doing something, you might behave differently. Uh, And that's all of it. And therefore, we can confidently say that our future will be the future of ideas, ideas that stick, ideas that change possibility, ideas that that just shift us one way or another. I mean, we we have such software and you humans are remarkable in the way that you can kind of inject or they can bring an idea in. I know you're an idea maven. You, You love collecting them. And once that idea comes into somebody, they think that this is good or bad. They think this is useful or not useful. They think this is exciting. They'll work. They'll die for it. But ideas are everything as far as humans are concerned and, of course, will shape our future. You tell us three things are necessary for successful idea selling or else 
what you can call innovation. First thing we need to do is make ideas useful. The second thing is to build a bigger brain. And then to win with new ideas is the third part of the three necessary tools that we need for innovation. So we'll get deep into those. But let's start, as you do in the book, with what you mean by making new ideas successful. Successful is exactly what it, it suggests in that somebody, maybe this isn't thought about enough, somebody has to look at an idea, new or old, finished or unfinished, and say, what is it I'd like to achieve with this idea? Or what would I like to achieve? What tool or idea do I need to achieve it? There are different ways of looking at the same thing. So what some people are sort of idea and tool focused. They come up with a cool new thing. I say that the true parents of innovation are necessity and curiosity. So some people are driven by the curiosity bit. They just, you know, you know, those people who take apart a television set or a computer, they want to understand how things work, a car, whatever. They understand how things work. Do a new crazy thing. Will this, uh, will this electric fence in a farm, <laughs> in a farm setting, what, what will happen if I touch it? What will happen if I touch it and I'm holding my friend? You're and describing I my a childhood. Whole, <laughs> a whole team of people, you know? And you're just curious for new experiences and you see. And, and the more scientific um, uh, among the uh, fellow humans, they do it. Franklin had a, attached a dog or something to a kite and flew it up there to see what would the impact of lightning. You know, just curious people. You got those people, idea generators. And then you got the people who say, I have a problem here, or I have an objective. I want a better world. That could be Martin Luther King, a social thing, or, or it could be uh, a, a Musk, somebody who wants to, to, to come up with a new clean transport solution. They, those people aim at, or Greta, who say, I have a necessity that cannot be met, cannot be solved or achieved without a new idea, because if it could, it would have already been solved. Those are the necessity people. And then you have the curiosity people. And of course, innovators have to somehow bring those two things together to say, what do we do with the new ideas we have? And how do we solve the ideas that are unsolvable without new ideas? And it's how you bring those together. And then your own judgment as to whether it's successful or unsuccessful, which is why the definition of innovation being about practical creativity and innovation being about making new ideas useful is so important. It's not just the idea. It's not just the invention. It's not just the tool. It's not the newness. It's the newness made useful that, that should matter to an innovator for a purpose, whatever that purpose is. You reminded me I mentioned of my childhood, but also I was thinking about this the other day. We live in a throwaway society and many of the things like a hairdryer or a broken, you know, one of the kids' toys, etc. We'd throw them away, and I recalled recently when we, when I was about to throw some stuff away that actually, when I was a kid, I used to take that stuff apart, and I'd get more joy out of that than actually a brand new Lego set or something like that, where you built to the instructions. And I bought my kids uh, little screwdrivers, little mini screwdrivers, and stuff like that. And it becomes now a ritual when anything's broken and it's not fixable. 
I give it to them and they take it apart and they absolutely love doing it. And my wife's in the background going, if you electrocute those kids. <laughs> <laughs> I, remember, I remember learning the difference between it. You know, electricity is when, when I remember plugging a car radio that I'd bought to, you know, the jumble sale or something, but into the mains electricity of the kids. And, <laughs> and suddenly you learn, you know, the difference between voltages. I mean, this getting your hands dirty part of innovation is, of course, hugely important because it builds confidence and skills. It builds that sense, that self-efficacy, bound down, that, that, that belief and confidence that you can remake your world. The world has been made and the world is remakeable and that you personally can remake the world. And then the, the next level up is that you have the skills, the know-how to remake your world. And that's what programmers, engineers, scientists, by playing, they go, oh, I can change the color of that. That program, that's what the Raspberry Pi is about, really, is trying to tell somebody, this software in front of you is made by somebody. The, the electronics is made by somebody, but so is your body and so is politics and so is, you know, culture. It's all being made up by other humans. And just because you can't see the makers and there aren't signatures on rules and regulations and traditions and even religion doesn't mean that it wasn't made up by a human. And what is made can be remade or unmade and made better. I mentioned in the intro, you talk about the definition of innovators as mavericks, as rule breakers, or as, as rebels. And I think that that's really important what you said, that if a rule was made, it was made for a certain point in time. And the innovator or the change maker wants to question that and go, actually, is that relevant anymore? Because the world has moved on. And oftentimes the rules and regulations we have, they're anchored to an old world. And it's the same in organizations. When an organization, even an org chart, org charts were built for an old world and we're still using them and we're still using the structures. And that's why it's breaking down. And it's also true that a thing may have arrived for no particular reason at all. Not only is it no longer useful, it may be never was useful. And nobody can remember if it ever was and where it ever came from. And we have these ideas floating around. Much of what we do is it's unclear where it came from. And so because of that, I think it's very important for us to not assume that what is has any particularly good reason for existing. And so that we can question things. And I don't mean, by, by the way, that we should just rip up everything. There's no evidence that just disrupting for the sake of it leads to anything better. It could just be that you've got a bunch of chaos monkeys just ripping things up because they like it. We have to be guided of all of those things. And that's why keeping success and a desirable end, I think, is at the heart of being a real innovator. To say, look, before I rip it apart, let, let me look at how I would replace that and replace something better. Let me think of the smallest possible change. Now, let me not just rip it up for the, the sake of it. So the motivation to be an innovator can come from many different places. You can just be an anarchist or you can be a rebel. Rebels are people who just like to do new things and they don't worry too much about the consequence. Mavericks, they want to do new things, but they do care about the consequence. They're doing new things in order to improve the world. Something for everybody. And then you have good soldiers who keep the rules. They don't really know why, but, but they like to do it for some good purpose. They don't question things. And then you have those yes sirs 
those people who just slavishly defend whatever is because they're uncomfortable with anything that they don't understand and they're forever thinking their childhood was the best time ever and they don't really know why. And if the world was white, they want it to remain white. And if the world was masculine, they want it to remain masculine. If the world was, you know, a certain kind of TV show, they want it to remain that way. They they don't know why they're defending it, but they're going to keep on going. And what you want to do is, of course, shift the climate towards judging a rule on its merits and judging breaking a rule on its merits and being willing to do it or not do it, depending on whether it actually contributes to the greater good yeah and you tee up a principle that's dear to my heart and I, lo- I love the psychology of innovation and why it gets blocked and for example you mentioned there the people who are stuck with the status quo and defend it because unfortunately in our world oftentimes they're the ones who lead organizations because the organization is established it's established a way of doing things it's established a modus operandi and the economist john maynard keynes once said it's not new ideas that the problem, it's not letting go of the old ideas. And in this vein, you highlight what we know can actually hurt us. Yes, very much so. And, and I guess I should, should say to those who haven't seen the book yet, that all of these concepts, these aphorisms, I've made this book as short as possible. So every little word, every little phrase is very carefully chosen. I mean, I've semi-agonized over the choice of one word or or another all the way through keep making it shorter because when you get to this point of what you know can hurt you it's that you think you know it and you don't or you've learned how to keep a particular rule but it's really not going to keep you safe in the future we sometimes think that only means it can hurt you because your business fails or because you lose your job. But there are other ways in which it can fail you. There are some wealthy people in this world, wealthy, powerful people who are nevertheless trapped in a miserable equilibrium and they'll die rich. And I think that they'll die trapped at the same time. And I would pity them more than fear them because they are trapped in what they think they know. It's the only thing they know. You know, the only thing I learned how to do was to be a selfish bastard. Does that really help you? I think it does help you in acquiring money. You're made for it. Because in any given situation where a wise person, a prudent person might say, hey, I I don't think this is working out for everybody. That's a bit, you know, mean or that's a bit short-sighted. The greedy bastard personality will say, well, I'll, I'll take it anyway. I'll take it anyway, no matter what, even if it harms everybody else. And so I I suppose I am arguing for a form of wisdom, like Gracian argues, a form of prudent innovation that can be radical, but not damaging and can be, you know, of this moment, but at the same time, long term wise. You know, there's a line that I loved in here. You said, better to ask stupid questions and keep learning than stop learning and stay stupid. And it's why at the start of the show, I used the Steve Jobs intro, which is stay hungry, stay foolish, because hungry means hungry for more and curious and improvement and foolish means seeking new knowledge in permanence. So you never stop learning. The point is, as ever, to learn so that you can adapt, so that you can enjoy more success in that sense that you understand it or that I understand it, whatever you're seeking, you know, uh, peace at minds, peace and prosperity uh, and uh, love and friendship. You know me, 
I want to, I would measure my life on things like what I learned, but also how many hours I got to dance in a room full of people who, who are giving off good vibes. So it's different for different people. But the idea that we should stay stupid when we could actually become smart is sad. But until really smart succeeds, stupid will continue. You have to find ways, not just to win the argument, but to change the world, which is why there are three jobs of any innovator. It's not enough to just be right. You have to do more than that. Let's jump into some of the concepts you mentioned there, the way the book is structured. And there's a great one here, which is how little can be huge. And you give the great example of Oral-B. On a toothbrush, as you know, you're not meant to carry on with the same old toothbrush until it wears out. It's not good for your teeth. And it's also not good for a toothbrush manufacturer because they can't sell you a new one. So ideally, what you want is a twofer here. You want a both situation where the user of that toothbrush is helped. And so is the manufacturer in this case, and it, it can carry along happily. And really what they just they thought of was if we just color the top of that toothbrush bristle, when it wears down and there is no more blue left, you know it's time to buy a new toothbrush. That simple. It doesn't cost any money. It's really clear to the consumer and you have a virtuous cycle so very small things can have a big impact and that's true for things that are viewed more, much more complex you find just the right molecule and you have a high impact you understand the mechanism and suddenly you're using the the body's t cells to fight cancer instead of missing it but yeah oral b teeny example coffee cup holder tiny example but it still improves things and can provide help to the consumer but also often a livelihood for the inventor. So it's this idea of hybrids, and it doesn't have to be one or the other or two for, as you, you mentioned it. Let's share the further concept here of tensions and contradictions, which you do beautifully, by the way. You said about choosing the words carefully, and that's very, very clear, by the way. And you say here, if the innovation doesn't overcome some contradiction between conflicting objectives, then it is not genius. It's obvious. Yeah, I'm giving a pause for my own enjoyment in my own language. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, bravo, young sir. Yes, well done. So, you know, I know, I know that it sounds full of myself, but sometimes I have reread my own work and I'm thinking, that is really bloody clever. You know, well done, well, well done <laughs> you. I wonder if anyone else is going to notice. So, so, <laughs> Raise a glass in the mirror to yourself. So, so thank you very much for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, because people can use words to describe but books, I suppose, are say simple or accessible or I read it quickly. But it's so important. I love aphoristic books, you know, books like Sun Tzu's Art of War or Gracian's The Art of Prudence or Machiavelli's to some extent. Books where somebody has said, I, I'm telling you these are my conclusions and this is how it fits together. Now, but, you know, but please engage with what I've said rather than having to. I guess, hide behind 700 words of dense prose. But anyway, the, the, um, here, this is the idea. Uh, the, the, the example sometimes I give is of uh, a lawnmower. Uh, roughly, you have two kinds of lawnmower. You have a lawnmower that's heavy, that uh, can cut straight lines. And you have a lawnmower that's light, a hover mower, that uh, doesn't give you a hernia, but can't cut straight lines. 
So here you have a choice between hernia straight lines, and it depends which one you favor. A, an innovation would seek to overcome or dissolve the contradiction between those two and give you straight lines while not being heavy to use. And if you can accomplish that, then you have got gone some way towards innovation. At another layer down, you might say, but why am I even mowing my lawn? I didn't, you know, some people love that. They're into, you know, lawn porn, as it's called, that they're exchanging pictures on how well manicured the lawn is. And I guess you've played on lots of grounds with groundsmen who are well into that and making sure it's exactly measured. Uh, but but maybe you're not into that. So how, how else would you accomplish it? Uh, and I might ask an audience in the past and say, how would you? And somebody would say, oh, I could pay my child to do it. I could provide pocket money in order to, to mow the lawn. Or I could say they can't go on their console until they've mowed their lawn, get it done for free. Or I could get a service in to, to do it. So that would work. Or, or a robotic uh, lawnmower that was heavy, but did it for you so that it's not heavy for you or even uh, genetically modified lawn seed that I've seen in California, Arizona, that has one strip done so that grows in one direction and then one strip that grows in another direction and only grows to a predetermined height. So now you don't have to mow the lawn at all because the objective was to have a lawn that looks a certain way rather than to cut the lawn at all. And so those are all different ways that one might start to try to dissolve the contradiction between the lawn mowing situation as is. Uh, and that is the case for uh, all situations. You can attempt to dissolve the contradictions between A and B. And therein lies the genius when you, when you do this, when you solve these contra contradictions. Let's move on to variations. And I loved how you phrased this. If you're going to take another pause here, man, it's like it's it's actually like you think in paradox in this book, which is lovely, and in, in contrasts, in positive contradictions. And you say here, innovation seeks to overcome constraints by introducing new approaches to how a problem is solved. In the old approach, the new performance objectives were possible. In the new approach, the old performance objectives are just the starting point for new improvements. I love that because. It's this idea of building on the shoulders of giants, but the shoulders of idea giants. Quite. And you see this in so many areas. If you imagine humans and a, a series of maybe concentric circles, really, they should be three-dimensional, you know, like a ball. But, but around, around the first brain, let's say, see if people can imagine this. But you have the concentric circles coming out. And idea the first human can only reach out to his or her arm's length and then they discover a stick and then they discover a stone and they can reach out a little bit further and then they discover things that you can do with that stick or stone by adding a uh, a, a the stick to the stone so now you have a spear or a p piece of cord to it so that you have a trap and it's every uh, layer the 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 reach of that individual human is extended or the group of humans is extended uh, along the six or seven key desires that humans have because all of this is guided by human nature and human desires 
uh, and it, it gets further and further so that really you start from scratch. If you want to get a message to New York now, you don't think about uh, weeks or months or days or hours. You think of, well, you don't even think of a time difference. It would make no difference whether this podcast was from the uh, England to Ireland as this one is or England to New York or Australia. And so you start at the the, the previous best uh, and then you work outwards. And I think this is sometimes what people find hard in adaptation is when they haven't realized that the boundary has shifted. So they're still trying to catch up from the, the, the previous zone and they're having to work as hard as they possibly can to keep up because the costs have changed, for instance. You can't run a, a clip, you can't run a shop on a high street in the same way as you can run a shop online. The, the economics are not the same. And so you thought this was impossible before, and now it's not only possible, it's normal. It's uh, taken for granted, uh, the two-hour delivery or an hour delivery, uh, and you haven't realized that, and then you find it hard to keep up. Standards have changed. People find that hard in cultural elements too. Things have moved on, and what you thought was previously acceptable isn't anymore. Um, we can do this in a whole different way. So let's do it the new way and then push forward. If you don't do it the new way, you're going to be left behind. And as you say, like you see it, for example, with broadcasters, with, with TV broadcasters, that Netflix has set the new standards. You see it with retailers and e-tailers that Amazon is the new standard. So if you're not like them, then you're behind and everybody's comparing against that new standard. I love that. And you tell us, New ideas are always made of old ideas, and you give us the example of Lego that many people may not know. Well, before Lego, as you bring up, there were other plastic bricks, and those other plastic bricks looked almost identical to Lego. They have a history. You can go online and find them in a series of red bricks, first just basic, and then with a slit in them so that they can move, so they can fit onto each other, and then with studs on the top, and then with a superstructure inside so that it can flex but still stay firm. And even the Duplo blocks have existed before Lego. Some of those were copied with permission and some of them were just copied. And so even Lego, the building block that is Lego, has come from somewhere. But then as I point out it with another principle, no idea, no, however beautiful, is ever perfect. And so there is always room. You've never run out. It's never too late. Oh, I don't know. They've got penicillin. There'll be no need for new medicines. <laughs> or, you know, they've solved. They've got calculators. There'll be no need for a new calculating device. There's always something that you can do better, but you can look backwards for new ideas to either merge them or to multiply them or to, to, to reverse what exists, to cut something off or to add something on and then generate something else. The play system is what Lego gives you. The play system, just as Edison gives you the lighting system. That's what he really brings to you. He doesn't bring the component parts. Jobs brings you the, the media delivery system. But that becomes the new norm. It's this idea of thinking in ecosystems. But last one on ideation and new concepts before we move on to building a bigger brain, the second part of the book. I loved the concept of idea zombies, and it reminded me of what physicist Max Planck once said, which is, science advances one funeral at a time. And that, 
that we need to almost kill off those other ideas because if we latch on too strongly to them, they'll drag us down. They will, and it links back to that idea that what you know can hurt you. And you know in all of this that a favorite line of mine is always that it depends. It's not just one thing or another thing. And occasionally it is easier to sell just one simple answer to a question. Um, everything's about no, or everything's about yes, or everything's about speed, or everything's about solidity. But the truth is it's uh, everything matters that matters. And in this case, what you're trying to do is look at an idea. And if an idea is past its sell-by date, if an idea is using up more resources than it gives you back, if it's dead, but it doesn't know it yet, then what you have to do is work hard to kill it off for real. And part of that is to go for the head. And what I mean here is that twofold, really. One, if those idea zombies are in the heads of your most senior people, then they will continue to feed them. And that will continue to, I suppose, infect the rest of the organization. So go for the head of the organization. However grassroots you may want to be, the head has an impact. And the second one is, of course, to go for their heads in that that's where it is. And if you can break the hold that the idea zombie has over people so they can go, oh, God, now I realize, now I got it, that the high street is not what it was, that the economics don't work or that, that the oil fossil fuel pollution thing is really real. If you can manage to convince a person of to go A rather than B, then you can kill off the idea zombie and use resources for something better. In there somewhere is the start of the second concept, which is the idea of creating a bigger brain. And by this, you mean building a bigger mind for the organization, a bigger brain for the organization to make innovation happen or to sell the innovation or to accept it. And one of my own personal mantras is you cannot change business models until you first change mental models. And you emphasize the importance of nurturing a culture of innovation. And you may have heard I had the brilliant Amy Edmondson on the show before talking about psychological safety. And and this is key to it because you talk about different types of culture, toxic, idea wasteful, idea friendly, and idea hungry. This cultural thing is so important because if we even flip back, even geniuses and even genius ideas are going to need the help of other brains and other bodies and other believers to get them done from the seemingly just most banal you have to have people to make the stuff that you have invented just for instance you have to have somebody look after things the accounts you know all those things have to exist so the idea of the lone inventor who is successful is so seldom the case and even if they did invent something on their own somebody else has to take it and make it viable and sustainable and actionable on all those seemingly practical things that they're not the enemies of innovation. They are part of the core second job of the innovator. Cultures is everything. It's the beliefs and the habits and the thought processes and the behaviors of a group of people, the way they joke, the way that they organize, all of those things. And you have those that are just toxic to any new idea. They're full of people who either think that they are right or just fear what is different. 
And there are some people here who believe in best practice, for instance, that can lead to an idea toxic culture or climate. And that's interesting because you can have best practice for innovation that drives out ideas. You can have agile methodologies that <laughs> slow everybody down. And so this idea that you're judging the idea on its conformity rather than on its consequence is right at the heart of idea toxic. And all the way through to idea wasteful, where ideas float around and sometimes they're used and sometimes they're not, to idea friendly, you know, hey, since you're here, we'll sit down and have a chat, to idea hungry. And an idea hungry culture, individual, climate, organization is one that says, we value these things. We value these idea babies ideas that don't come from here, ideas that do come from here, because we want, we recognize that they can help us to go where we want to better or to go to places that were previously impossible. And so idea hungry, that's right at the heart of it, a valuing of, and that in a sense becomes the new normal. It's not just disruption, it's not best practice, it's not just rigor and conformity, it's understanding ideas as they are and seeking them out, looking for them like Pac-Man, and then knowing what to do with them. And this idea of creating the organizational brain as a bigger one, and one accepting of ideas, for any organizational change to happen, leadership support is essential. And you say the leader sets the tone. If you talk about the future, people will prepare for the future. If you're in the market for new ideas, creative people will bring you their best work. If you have a track record and reputation for nurturing new ideas, Everybody will bring you the best of themselves because you care. To a large extent, at least over the medium term, leaders get the kind of innovation or innovative behavior they deserve or that their behavior leads to. And there are so many examples of this. But you ask yourself, say, an obvious one. I remember a guy I was talking to, and he had been fired three times from Apple. And he'd been fired for various reasons, not bad behavior, but just underperformance. And he didn't even think it was that fun to work at Apple. But he said, I keep going back because I know that they appreciate the difference between crap and brilliance. They understand the difference. They're seeking brilliance. And that motivates me. I mean, you think in the world, who have... Who are the best and the brightest seeking to work for? It's always a choice. At one point, it was definitely not Microsoft. And now it's a bit more Microsoft because he's all empathetic, you know. And so people are thinking, oh, that would be really great. And they're growing again. And maybe it's less Apple because they haven't done anything new recently, but it's totally must. And so that there is that sense that in little and big ways, brands and leaders attract people who want to make a difference. Uh, because those are the people who are most likely to shift. Netflix is hot. I mean, you can see it, actually. We, we had a whole stream. And so somebody would go Microsoft to Google, Google to Amazon, Amazon to Netflix, Netflix to Tesla. And while not everybody is that um, mobile, uh, people's brains are to some extent, and they will their attention will shift. And if you're that person, not only my door is open, but my uh, head is open. I'm idea hungry. I'm demanding of those ideas. I will help those ideas to be successful. I'm not just flibbity majibbity. That's a word I didn't think I'd say. But, you know, I'm not just post-it notes. 
are not post-it notes in superficial, bland, uh, business model planning, blah, blah, blah sessions. What I am about is saying idea, rigor, transparency, honesty. How do we get from great ideas into the world? How do we do great things with great ideas? Uh, who would you want to work for? The very best people want to work for the very best people. Anybody will do their best work for somebody who wants them to do their best work. I just I was thinking of that guy that got fired from Apple, but got back three times as well. So fair play. I was thinking <laughs> he comes back and you're different yeah, names. and you're kind of going. My name is Hayden McMullen, and I'm wearing one of those glasses, you know, the plastic glasses with the fake nose and the mustache on it. And they're like, going, you look very familiar, man. Very familiar, yeah. Like some kind of Pink Panther kind of situation <laughs> with his mustache. I think there's, there's something here where if you think of those histories, the true ones, Steve Jobs does not invent the computer. He doesn't build the first one that they sell. He doesn't invent the, the mouse. He doesn't invent the, the, the GUI, sort of um, the, the graphical interface. He doesn't invent MP3s or the digital player or headphones or portable music players or the internet or the web or downloadable music or downloadable films. I mean, really, does he, invent, he doesn't invent anything. But what he does manage to do is pull together ideas, steal ideas, borrow ideas, bring people in bring them into some kind of group and push them, push them, push them to their very best. So invents nothing, but is a true innovator. One of the key ideas and one of the ones I really loved and it really spoke to me because I've seen this in organizations. I've been in organizations and I've had ideas that get thrown in the bin because oftentimes they're rejected by finance, which we'll come back to in a second. But you suggest ideas create an idea market because we can always find a new market for an unwanted idea. It may not be wanted in your organization, but it could be wanted elsewhere. That's a really key point, because your organization structure may not support new ideas like that. But if the company is open to put them on the shelf and go, okay, let's find somebody who'll possibly buy this, and maybe find a customer before you build it, and then build it. Yeah, and this can work at so many different levels. Um, Google used to have a database where they would store ideas from their idea sessions so that if somebody had a new idea session, they could search the database. So that's a very basic version where you say, look, let's store what we've done so that if we try to do it again, we are aware that we have done it before, not to reject it, but to build on the learning from the last time we tried it, as an example. Uh, BT, British Telecom, when they were in financial problems, they had a great big lab that would generate lots of patents, but very few of those patents would make it into the market. And they founded a new part of the organization and somebody came in and their job was to make money from the patents, to go out and find partners to, uh, to either fund or to build ideas that lay in dormant. Or, or uh, over at Toyota, the way that they insist that everybody comes up with um, an idea on a regular basis. I mean, it's part of your contract to come up with an idea to improve your job. And you have to try it. And your manager has to help you, even if it's been tried and it has failed before. 
And so, of course, you have this flow of ideas coming back into the organization being improved, true continuous improvement. Share them with partners if you can't use them yourself. Store them, protect them, but don't hide them away and keep bringing them out into the light and seeing, is the time good now? It wasn't last time, but it is now, and it could save the whole organization. And that's why that line is such a negative and such a killer of ideas line, which is, we've tried that before. Because yes, you may have tried that before, but the time was different. The environment was different. Perhaps the people in the organization who would support ideas were different. All that stuff becomes so important. But let's move on to after you build a bigger organizational brain. So you've done that. We must remember then that most ideas fail. That's an absolute fact of innovation. So you have to create strategies to deal with failure. I'd love to hear your ideas on this. How do you create strategies to deal with failure, to accept it? Because many organizational leads will see that as a waste of money. I argue here that most things fail. They do. Fail as in what has been generated, especially if we include it in the failure, what is replaced. That an idea exists, because we talk about that with animals. If an animal goes extinct, we, we say that it's kind of failed. It failed to adapt. You know, it ceased to exist, even if it's replaced with a new evolution, a better adapted organism. So in this case, you can have replacement ideas. There was a blockbuster, but that idea has been replaced with a better adapted idea, Netflix as an example, or Amazon Prime and so on. So the idea, the core need is still there. It's just been physicalized in a different way. And then you also have attempts at the same idea that your attempt at doing digital video fails and somebody else's attempt at digital video succeeds. And I think what, what I mean that largely in getting yourself a failure strategy is one, one that accepts that failure is normal, especially in a competitive environment. But people talk like all failure is the result of stupidity. It isn't really. You can be very, very competent. You can produce something of great value. But when you get to the marketplace and you have to make an idea popular and easy to swallow and more popular than the next one and able to compete and fitting into people's lives and having sufficient resources and all those things, you just need to have had somebody do it a bit better than you. And you could fail. You did a great, BlackBerry did a great job. It's just that the iPhone was a more popular dominant design. They did a great job. What they had to do is shift. And so accepting, I think that one, accepting that you will fail or that failure is a possibility or that competition will render your best efforts incompetent or unneeded will allow you to then think, how do we deal with that? What's our plan B? and D. How do we let everybody know that there will be a need for shifting again and again and again, that, that it's always the beginning? So that's certainly part of what I mean by an overall failure strategy. I love that. Progress into how, do you, again, do you make ideas work? How do you even align them with the waves of change? And you talk about three success waves that enable innovation. The first is the innovator's wave. The second, the competitor's wave. And the third is the popularity wave. Yes. Yeah, so, so we have the, the innovators wave is, is that one that the journey that you take from making an idea work to making an idea work properly 
to then the dominant version of that idea. So you as a particular innovator or company may fall out at any point in that. You know, some of the listeners, yourself, you'll remember early computing and early consoles. Most of those device manufacturers no longer exist, but computing exists because you find a new dominant design. If you want to play a game, you buy a console, Sony, uh, Microsoft, and Nintendo. That's what you do. Uh, if you want to do something serious, you use a, a, a computer. If you want to do something personal, you use your phone. But those are shifting over and over again, what is a dominant design shift. And you have to be aware of that and whether you now, your bit has ended and a new part of the wave has begun uh, and knowing where, when that is happening. Then there's the competitor's wave, of course, in that this is the energy of developing a version of idea that's actually shared and exchanged and sold to other people. So at some point, there is a dominant design. We know what a phone looks like now. They all look the same. And for a period of time, the competition is between people and its price and its manufacturing and its accessibility and its branding and it's shifted. And people who are into technology will say the innovation is over, but the innovation is kind of, the competition is not over. And that has to continue until there's the new innovation wave. And then of course, there's the popularity wave that even if you are, you have the idea that works as a dominant design and you are the most popular you still need to actually become popular enough to feed your idea. Uh, it's not enough to just be the first and the best. You have to make it popular enough. And that means often dealing with people who are not interested in new or technology. They just, it, 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 they, they just need, it needs to slip in there and be as easy to use as a light switch, which is the, the toughest test, really. Is, it, is your technology as easy to use as a light switch? Because truly, uh, people who are not clever at all can manage to turn the light on. And that's part of a sophisticated system and they can manage to turn the TV on. And that's why those things are mass technologies because the bar to use uh, and to usefulness is so low. Having a framework in which to put your idea and then which bucket does it go in, which wave does it go in, is really useful because it helps you explain your idea and this idea of communicating your idea is so important. And I loved the way you phrased this one. You're going to love this, man. You can fill up your drink and listen to me here. <laughs> There's two, two kinds of people fail with innovation projects. One motivates employees with an eccentric, colorful style, but receives no funding. The other convinces the leaders to invest heavily in innovation, yet gains no support from employees who ignore their ego-driven calls for ideas. The first is fluent in the language of the front line. The second is gifted only in executive speak. They are stuck because they can communicate with only one of the many groups they need to reach. Your challenge is to find a way of communicating with all the relevant groups. Each has its own values, symbols, jargons, jokes, heroes and villains. And I found this so many times. The communication between groups and the person who's the intermediary between the groups needs to be polylingual. They need to speak the language of the recipient and the person they're coming from. The messenger needs to be 
able to speak in multiple languages, multiple jargons in order to keep everybody on board. And oftentimes this is where innovation fails. Especially because the innovator has to do something more complicated. They have to introduce an idea that is new. And so by definition, they're not a continuation leader. They are uh, not disruption, but, but change. So you've got to introduce something new to people who may not be interested in it with a, that is not necessarily proven, that has a language around it that is foreign. So, of course, and you need the help of more groups because each one needs to maybe adjust. And so the, in all the, the, the work I did, I mean, way back to a huge study on IBM and HP, Hewlett-Packard, over 30 years of their history. And we analyzed all their uh, correspondence between the CEOs and their employees and the CEOs and their shareholders. And what we found was that there were some who just left their, who were very, they were very good at communicating to the team inside. They could talk the language of the team, but could not bring the external world to the team sufficient for the team to change. So they left them just really you know, like happy, but stranded. And then you had people who were really good at speaking the language of the, the market, and they were on the front of Forbes magazine or something, and the shareholders loved them, except they could not communicate to the internal team. And the internal team either were just confused, bewildered, or actually abandoned and attacked them. And that's not always, it's not really always about fault in the sense that the internal team might have the problem, you know? Um, the internal team might be the one that should really get up to speed or the internal team has rejected the leader for some very unfair reason. Um, it could be something as simple as sexism. The leader is now a woman and she is telling everybody what really needs to happen but is being rejected. So I'm not talking about fair unfair. I'm talking about the fact that you have to understand to be understood. and You have to find a way if you are to be followed or you know, to bring this in. You have to understand how to get there. So if you can't do it, find an interpreter who can. Find somebody who can be your, I mean, you know, you're clearly a professional uh, national team player. You know that there were some people in that that dressing room. In fact, we've got a photo of you here, half naked in a dressing room (laughs) in Toulouse. but, but not as a poster, I may add. It's not that I need it. It's, I use it as inspiration. <laughs> as do I, Adrian. As do I. <laughs> but, uh, but the point is that, you know, you can have a leader, that you can have a coach who can have all the right ideas, but is failing to get them across to the leader, to the, the group. You can have one person in the group who's fantastic at, getting on the wavelength of the, in this case, the boys, I guess, the lads, you would have called them, you know, the group team, uh, another person who can block it just by one joke or a smirk. Um, you have a, uh, a, a psychologist coming in, they can be accepted or not, and so on. So you have this flow of ideas. Uh, and it's just important, uh, as I point out, I guess, on another one, that you will be judged before your idea, typically. Uh, and so you might, you've all seen that bit in the serial killer FBI movie where the psychologist is just ignored because they come from a university and because they don't speak English, that kind of idea. But if you want your idea to be popular, you've got to find a way of dealing with people who don't care about your idea. Facts. Greta can't carry on talking to people who believe her forever. 
there'll have to be a communication between people who don't care and people who do care in a language that those don't care understand. And so it's right at the heart of this if you want your great new idea to make a great big difference. And this is why culture is absolutely key. Last one on this, because this one, many people listening to the show who are change makers within organizations will have found. And it's that idea of selling the idea. And one of the biggest rejections comes from trying to get finance on board, because they value innovation or non-innovation in the same way, or they try and enforce the same timelines as a proven idea on top of an unproven idea. And that makes the idea stillborn. Very much. And it's linked partly to the idea of language, that surely those who you need cannot be best treated as your enemy. If you belittle, if you condescend to, if you have friction with the people you need, it seems highly likely that they will warm to you. So far better to say, what, what is it that they are looking for, whoever they are? Originality needs power is one of the principles in the book. And there are so many examples where an idea is rejected if the person who's offering it is not able to speak to power or to resources or to money. Now, there's many ways of doing this, of course. Now, fortunately, and maybe always, it's possible to go to big money, to traditional money, to formal money, to informal money, to your friends and families. So there are all sorts of ways of doing it. But you still have to sell your idea to get funding. And then even more than that, well, next, you have to find a way, call it the one, two, three, because nobody's done it better than Netflix did it originally, when there were just three steps, a little video and a little poster that said, this is my idea, one, two, three. And theirs was, select a movie online, request it, and it will arrive in the post, send it back in an envelope, one, two, three. And you've got to get it down there so that you're selling it to multiple groups in a very clear one, two, three way. It's not the appendices. It's not all the detail. It's definitely not all the technical detail. It's the one, two, three for the audience you're after. And that might be just, I trust you. You get it. And that might be enough for a funding group who's working for a team. Or it might be, you get me. I need a result by June the 3rd in order to report to my boss. So understand the message and then deliver it as a one, two, three. And for people who are looking to find out the one, two, three about Max McKeown for your books, for your workshops, etc., where can they find you, Max? There is a www.maxmckeown.com and I'm on Twitter and on Instagram and so on. But come find me on LinkedIn because there's discussion about these points and you'll be surrounded by people who are really interested in strategy and innovation and adaptability and making a difference Uh, and you can ask your questions there if you've got any and of course if you come armed with a selfie of yourself in a book you'll get even more attention you've kindly given me a copy to give away and i'll give that away on linkedin when i publish the show so author of the innovators book rules for rebels mavericks and innovators dr max mckeown thank you so much for joining us total delight aiden real pleasure Thank you.